Reflections on Dante's Paradiso by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 6 Teilhard Desjardins said that no amount of time, no matter how lengthy, and no number of random occurrences, no matter how many, would ever produce the slightest progression in the organization of material world if the stuff of the cosmos were perfectly indifferent. The point, the punto of, of God, of the, of the punto that is God, is to overcome the indifference of matter. That is what it's designed to do at whatever le- level it's operating is to overcome the indifference in the material world that would be there save for the punto. It is to make matter matter. What's the point? In entering into matter this way, it is, as Dante indicates here, a punto, a sting, a wound, a goad, a piercing. There is a wound there, which is where I go to find the punto with a small p and finally the punto with a big one. Oh, happy fault. That is the thing that, as Thurman said, has been bugging me. It's the burr under the saddle that, has, that drives all of created life from, from the coldest lump of matter to the saints. By entering into matter that way, the punto who is the Godhead creates a wounded place in all of creation appears to play. And it makes indifference possible only to someone who can repress or anesthetize the wounded place. We would all love to get to the punto with a capital P without going through the punto with a small p, but not likely. If we can repress or anesthetize that punto, that wounded place, we will fall into sin because sin means missing the point. Hamartia means to miss the point. Well, now there's the other word that's in between the two puntos and that is the word translated by Charity as hung. Remember he said, from that one point are hung the heavens and all nature's law. The word is depende. Depende. This is the point from which the whole cosmos hangs, on which the whole cosmos is dependent. The whole cosmos that is brought to life as in motion is dependent on that one point. To get the idea of, of it of the cosmos hanging from that one point, 
one would have to lie on the floor and look up at a chandelier attached to the ceiling at one point. The chandelier being the whole of created cosmos. And all of the questions and mystery about that cosmos uh, funnel back down finally or back in or up through to that one point. We want to know now something about the moment of the Big Bang. We have this question about the Big Bang. And we know that all the material cosmos collapsed into an infinitesimally small point and the Big Bang began. Well, this is just the current rendition of understanding that it is all... It is it all finds its origin at a point. And Dante says it hangs upon that point. It is dependent. And, and any act of independence, any declaration of independence, leads to lesser life, not greater life. That's an important insight of Dante. It, it, it seems, that's why it's so appealing to us, it seems to lead to greater life. It seems to lead to freedom and to larger life, but it leads to lesser life. Only in the context of that dependence do I come fully alive. There's more on this I want to come back to later. I'd like to read a, a closing section of a poem that I wrote a number of years ago, and I'm sorry again to read one of my own poems, but it was the one that came to me. I, I mean, I was reading, meditating on this passage, and I, it, I, I remembered some lines from this poem and went back and looked at it, and it does speak to me uh, of this coming together of the punto, which is the Godhead, and the punto, which is the wound or the longing. And the poem is a wildly improbable one, except for the salient features of it uh, were something, uh, consisted of something I actually witnessed at the Sonoma County Jail one Sunday morning. I was not in the jail, but I was there. I won't go into the details of why I was there, but in any case, I was there. And uh, I witnessed a scene, it was very touching, which was a young girl talking on one of those horrid telephones that goes through four feet of wire bet between the, the double glass to her mother, who was on the other side, who was a young woman, uh, and I was surmising, had been, this was my surmise. Well, I won't I don't know what was happening. I, in the poem, which is a fictional creation, the young woman had been picked up for prostitution. And in the poem, that Sunday morning was the Sunday morning that the little girl was to have her first communion. Uh, the mother in the poem who had been arrested uh, for prostitution, the early part of the poem says she was, it was she who in last night's Christ likeness fused her body and her bread, her wine and blood, then consecrated each as best she could. Well, in the conclusion, concluding part of the poem, um, there is a brain, there's a coming together of the communion that was to be and the fracturing that always has to precede communion in the liturgical form. It goes like this. Today was the day she was to finally wear her first communion dress, white patent shoes, with flowers in her hand, a veil around her hair, to pause once more before the tutelar and light the votive candle fuse, then walk up to the altar rail to take the world's too gaudy picture down and touch her tongue and hang her heart upon 
the rusty nail on which the world is hung, when a lightning Roman hammer swung and drove it too far home. So that point on which the world is hung coincides there with that hammer that drives it too far home and leaves that wounded place and that longing, unsatisfied, longing for that communion. So it is a dependent world, dependent on the punto, that is the Godhead, and in which all of matter is invested with the punto, which is the goad or the wound or the, or the love's fire. Dante doesn't understand it, of course, because it contradicts his experience. He says, where the ordering we find in the universe like that, were the ordering we find in the universe like that of these bright wheels, what I've seen would satisfy my mind. But in the sensible universe, one can see the motions of the spheres become more godlike the nearer they are to the periphery. You see, in in the world we're used to, the divine is out there somewhere, is is on the periphery of existence. And Dante now says he has been going up through these spheres, up towards the heaven where God is, and they've been getting larger and larger horizons and greater and wider and all of that, and suddenly he gets out of those spheres into the Empyrean, which is heaven itself, and everything now is coming back to a point. And he's confused by that contradiction. The circumference of the sensible universe is the center of the real one. Or what's on the margins of the, cent- of the sensible universe, using it in both Dante's technical sense and in the way we usually use it. What's on the margins of the sensible universe is at the center of the real one. What's on the margins of the worldly life is at the center of the life of the world. The worldly life is the world of consensus reality, the zeitgeist. And what is on the margins of that is at the center of the world. And to move from one cosmology to the other is the business of religion. To move us from one cosmology to the other is the midlife business of religion. That's why religion waits so often on that midlife turn. Say, okay, now let's see what's really at the center of this. Let's get at the heart of this thing. Beatrice describes the orders of the angels and she says they are ordered according to their ability to see. She says, and know, this is Canto 28, 106, and know that all these raptures are fulfilled to the degree that each can penetrate the truth in which all questioning is stilled. The truth in which all questioning is stilled. Not the truth that answers all, that gives an answer to all the questions. But the truth in which all questioning is stilled. I want to try to hang on to that because I want to explore something later on today. And I hope I can remember to hang on to the truth in which all questioning is still and come back to it. That is to say, it is the truth that causes us not to find the answer to the question, but to drop the question. To see the question as inadequate to the reality. As an inadequate response to the mystery. All we could do in the face of the mystery is ask a question. And uh, if we ever fully face the mystery, we would drop the question and probably to our knees at the same time. So it is dropping that question. Louis Biancoli translates this line, the truth in which every intellect is calmed. 
calming of the mind in the face of the truth. And she says, one may see that the most blessed condition is based on the act of seeing, not of love. Love being the act that follows recognition. They see as they are worthy. That is to say, the issue is to open your eyes. Open your eyes and see what is there. Uh, try to see, try to t remove the layer supplied by the consensus reality that makes it tame and, uh, and uh, expedient and makes it easy to operate, manipulable. See, remove that, the poem is saying, if one could remove that filter, one could see what's really there and then love would follow. It's an act of waking up, opening the eyes. Beatrice explains that Dionysius, the Areopagite, who is the who's an early saint, converted by St. Paul, understood the angelic order, but Pope, Pope Gregory the Great did not. And then she concludes from that, and if the truth so hidden if a truth so hidden was made clear by one still in the weight of mortal dust, you need not wonder. One who saw it here returned and told him this. And the one who saw it here and returned and told him was Paul. And that's a little of an awkward insertion. I think it's there because uh, Dante wants to set the theme that what happened to him was something like what happened to Paul. Namely, a light from heaven blinded him. And he awoke from it, finally, to understand what he could not understand before. Beatrice then answers the question which she knows is next in the mind, and that is, why did God create all of this? Why is there creation? And she answers this question in the beginning of Canto 29, line 13 and following. She says, not to increase its good, no mill nor dram can add to true perfection, but that reflections of his reflection might declare, I am. Now, we know I am is God's name from the Old Testament. Aye, Asher, Aye. God, the, the, the God of the burning bush said to Moses, I am who am. The ultimate I am. I am. That's God's name. That reflections of his reflections might declare I am. Dante uses a technical word here, a Latin word. Subsisto, for I am. Subsisto means, I think the best English translation of the implication of it in Latin is, I stand up under. I stand up under. It is, it is the ultimate degree of participation in the divine I am available to a human being. I stand up under. The emphasis is on up and under. Subsisto means to stand up, to stand your ground. It's a very assertive term. Subsisto means to stand up. 
but it also means to stand up under, to stand up in relation to. So it is that combination of affirmation of being and the recognition of one's being in relation to a higher principle. Subsisto allows us to understand because we are standing up under. So I participated in divine I am to that degree that I can say subsisto. We can imagine now the confusion that we human beings have always had and will always have about this issue. If given a choice between the divine I am and ego, which is I am, it's very hard to resist the temptation somewhere along the line to go from ego to I am. Ego is, is cut off, floundering. It, it doesn't have that fullness of life. It's not the fullness of life. So the temptation is to recognize that this is not the fullness of life and to appropriate to oneself, functionally at least, the divine I am. And there, and and discover thereby that uh, discover a further impoverishment of one's being. One becomes some kind of hollow, archetypal, predictable nothing. So, what Dante is providing us is another option. Not the I, the divine I am, not ego, but subsisto, full life affirmed but in relation to the point of creation. God in the burning bush had said, I am who am. The author of The Cloud of Unknowing says, He is your being and in Him you are what you are. Subsisto. Subsisto. Well, another thing I'd like to explore for us for a second, because we don't think about angels very often, some of us do, some of us don't, but generally we don't think about angels very often, and this is a lot about angels, so we need to think about angels. Angels, or at least the ones we think of, those are the last two orders, the archangels and angels, they're messengers. The word means messenger. Angel means messenger. And they are the divine messengers. They are the transmitters of the divine urge. Or they, uh, the, they awaken the divine urge that has been implanted and bring it uh, into relationship to the practical concerns of life. Imagine the angels as those and the archangels as those who break down the primordial urge into intelligible, practicable, and contextual vitalities responsive to the situations that we meet. They summon the libido and deliver it to the workplace, so to speak. That's what the angels do. There are fallen angels. We must be wary of this. There are fallen angels. Beatrice says, line 20, uh, Canto 29, line 49, Nor could you count to ten and ten before some of those angels fell from heaven to royal the bedrock of the eternal core, the rest remained here and around their cause began the art you see, moved by such bliss that their glad revolutions never pause. It was a cursed pride for which they fell, 
the pride of that dark principle you saw crushed by the world's whole weight in deepest hell. I want to call in a metaphor in a minute of, the, of, a, of a black hole, but I, 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 the, the metaphor is almost made for us here. A cursed pride for which they fell, the pride of that dark principle you saw crushed by the world's whole weight in deepest hell. That's what a, that black hole is. It's a dark principle crushed by the, by the enormous weight of the implosion. So there are fallen angels, and they fall because of a cursed pride. And they fall, in that sense, what we could say is that they cannot stand up under. And so they arrogate to themselves the divine I am, functionally at least, maybe not creedally, but functionally. I am the center of the cosmos, not subsisto. And that is what appears to be a great victory one thinks in this context of, of Milton's uh, uh, Satan. Milton's Satan is such a fascinating, heroic figure and so diminished in real vitality, so full of vitality in one sense and so diminished of vitality in reality. So to appropriate that divine name instead of subsisto is the fallen angel's choice. Our responsibility is to, con to, is, to, is to attend to the messages of the blessed angels and to refuse to attend to the messages of the fallen angels. And what would that consist of? The fallen angels saying the divine I am encourage us to see created things to treat created things as though they were central, as though they were the cre creator, to take things out of that proper relation, the cosmic proper relation, to have the first violin or maybe the kettle drum assume that he is the conductor or the, or the composer. William Johnson, in his introduction to The Cloud of Unknowing, said, One can experience one's incompleteness Emotionally, or economically, or culturally, or sexually. And all this is painful. But how terrible to experience it at the deepest level of all, that of existence. How do I, where do I experience my incompleteness? The fallen angel would have me experience it in one of its manifestations not at its deepest level. The fallen angel would say, well, experience your incompleteness sexually and then follow me and we'll go try to get it completed. You will be liberated by completing it sexually or experience it economically. You know, if I, the fallen angel would try to convince me that if I only had the right sexual partner or if I was only in the right economic income bracket or if I was only something or other, then I would be liberated. That my incompleteness can be played out on one of those levels. And the true angel would say, your incompleteness is based on the fact that you are a creature, subsisto. And until you arrive at that, no genuine religious life begins until one recognizes one's utter dependence on God. So a fallen angel would... Um, let, let's... We don't talk about angels. We talk about archetypes. 
Instead of archangels, we talk about archetypes. Uh, and I don't want to turn it into Jungian lingo because it's ever so much more than that. Uh, but we can, we can see something in that archetypal theme. If an archetypal urge separates itself from the primordial urge that loves fire that's, that the punto injected into matter and, be, and asserts itself as the dominant life urge, then that's a fallen archangel. That's a presumption. That's an idol. Splits itself off and says that it will provide meaning. Becomes a cosmic free agent instead of something that is part of that coherent. If I'm in the grip of such an archangel, then I function as though, this idea of functional atheism, one doesn't have to declare it creedally, except one can simply function that way. I function as though the right sexual partner, or the right, if I were in the right income bracket, or the right configuration of personal security and national defense or something, Somehow, if I could just have those things, then I would be, my incompleteness would be solved. The, the metaphor for that, which is, in the biblical metaphor, it's the fall of Lucifer, the brightest of the angels, the light bearer. Lucifer means the bearer of light. The brightest of the angels makes that fatal step from subsisto to the divine I am and plunges into hell. And as, and, and as uh, Dante had said earlier using that image of uh, the pride of the dark principle you saw crushed by the world's whole weight and deepest hell. A black hole is created by an enormously bright and intense star that exhausts its energy, expands because of lack of an internal gravitational force, expands and becomes this brilliant, stellar object and then implodes with all of the all of the dead matter in it imploding and falls into a gravitational uh, implosion of such force that nearby matter and light is sucked into it beware if one goes if one of these things happens nearby you watch out because it pulls matter and light into it and not even light can get out. So powerful is the gravitational pull, or the gra yeah, gravitational collapse. So what starts as appears to be this, this beautiful sort of self-aggrandizing, stellar brilliance, then collapses to become what it really is, which is an energylessness. All of those, see, that's the that's the the fallen angels, brilliant Luciferian, and then. Now, the deadly shift from subsisto to the, to the appropriation of the divine I am is very difficult to detect until after the, everything's in rubble. There is an inevitable feature of that deadly shift, however, that can be detected. At least it can be detected in our time. I'm going to suggest this, at least. Now, I, I imagine the fallen angels, like being angels, they are pretty clever, I imagine the fallen angels uh, suit their message to the zeitgeist. They have to have to appeal to their client culture and you know their epoch and whatever. So maybe it undoubtedly changes. But the one 
in our time. I, I've spotted the one in our time. And that is, and it's brilliant, really, as it would be with an angelic being. The fallen angels do the following. They, the, as you know, evil can only pervert the good and the true. There is nothing else to pervert. What the fallen angels do in our time is that they convince us to regard the urge as an urgency. And all the rest follows. If I can regard that urge, if I can relate to that urge as though it were an urgency, then I'm lost. No matter how valuable the, the purpose, the goal, the, 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 no matter how important it all is, if I can relate to it as an urgency, then the first thing that becomes expedient, uh, excuse me, the first thing that becomes expendable is the deepest meaning and religious implication of it. We don't have time for that because it's an urgency. So the fallen angels, at least in our time, convince us to regard the urge as an urgency. It's a disaster. And they've gotten most of us into it. Beatrice goes on explaining a little bit about the angelic order. She says, These beings, since their first bliss in the sight of God's face in which all things are revealed, have never turned their eyes from their delight. No angel's eye, it follows, can be caught by a new object. Hence, they have no need of memory, as does divided thought. Biancoli translates those lines, No new objects therefore, ever intercept their vision, and thus it is not necessary to recollect an interrupted thought. They need not have, they need not remember because they never dismembered. They never forgot. And so they don't have to be reminded. They don't have to collect themselves up. They are collected around that point. We human beings, on the other hand, uh, are... Uh, notoriously the creature that has to constantly be recollected. We have to try to remember. Every time it hits us, it hits us like, oh, that's right, I forgot. We have to constantly gather up ourselves from that dispersal into this and that and the other thing. The, ang the angel's not so. The blessed angel. Beatrice refers to us creatures on earth. So men, awake but dreaming. Awake but dream. Conscious but only conscious to the degree that the zeitgeist allows them to be. Somebody once said, I forget who said, this popped into my head, I think it was, sounds like Santayana, but it was somebody like that. Said, we're, we're, uh, the, the gods bless us in, in, to this degree. Uh, things that are... Most of the things for which we have no answers never occur to us as questions. And so we're relieved of that. And it's, that's what the zeitgeist is all about. 
it's it's a way of limiting the questions to the available answers and so we are awake but dreaming and then she critiques the philosophies uh, and the preachers and the teachers and so on she says uh, speaking of the philosophies yet heaven bears even this with less offense than it must feel when it sees holy writ neglected or perverted of all sense they do not count what blood and agony planted it in the world nor heaven's pleasure in those who search it in humility the gospels are planted into the world by blood and agony and the word planted is seminarla which is to say from the word to inseminate the gospel is the gospel message is seminal and it is inseminated into the world by blood and agony or blood and anguish blood as you know in dante's physiology semen is a refined form of blood and because of the of the uh, the garden of eden curse the woman brings forth in in travail and so this is a birth, this is a new birth which is brought about the gospel is what brings us about the gospel inseminates and the passion of christ inseminated and brought forth in travail the new being and now the gospel continues that inseminating and giving birth and it cannot do that to the extent that it is it is uh weakened and perverted so the go- so the purpose of the gospel is pregnancy to impregnate every sermon is for the purpose of causing a pregnancy or every this is interesting seminar every seminar is for the purpose of impregnating most you will have noticed uh consist of some kind of intellectual safe sex <laughs> but the purpose of a seminar is to bring about a pregnancy as is the purpose of a sermon in dante's vision of what the gospel does angelus silesius you know has a thing about like how can i praise you mary if what happened in you doesn't happen in me and beatrice talks about the ignorant sheep fed on wind who the who sit in the pews for some of these sermons christ did not say to his first congregation go and preach twaddle to the waiting world he gave them rather holy truth foundation and then there's this little thing which is a minor point but it 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 caused as i meditate on it, it caused me to reflect on something i want to share it with you she says because of these such folly fills the earth that asking neither proof nor testimonials men chase whatever promise is held forth Mandelbaum translates that a little bit differently he says people throng to every indulgence backed by no authority that is to say the opinions backed by no authority are the ones that have the most appeal which is the ironic situation which which the authorities the the hierarchy in this case can take some blame for but it's the ironic situation which is that the fact that something is backed by authority is one strike against it already and what we lust for is something that is totally new what dante calls invented truths 
because that makes that satisfies our sense of pride. It's not something that we got as a hand-me-down. This is something we just discovered. And we don't have... So, so the very fact that something's backed by authority is a strike against it. i tell you what this led me to. I just want to share with you the little meditation it led me into. And that is that the mind that experiences truth and the mind that discriminates between truth and untruth are two different minds. The mind that experiences truth is one that is in the purely receptive mode. What I'm suggesting is that the mind that, that performs the, the discriminating function of separating truth from untruth is not the same mind that... Ex- and mind is a little limited here. It's not the same consciousness that experiences truth. So that if I am to increase my already slim chances of experiencing truth, I have to have available opportunities for turning off the discriminating mind and receiving something as true. And therefore, what a blessing it is. I remember, I'll tell you a story about this. What a blessing it is to have a tradition or an authority which will say to me, Gil, this is true. You don't. You can put your discriminating mind on the side here for a while. This is true. You can just be with it. What a blessing it is to have somewhere in in you know in my environment that voice. Because then I don't have to be testing it all the time. Because the very thing that's testing it all the time is the thing that prevents me from experiencing it's true. I remember having having this come to me when I. Years ago, I was studying Jung, and he was into, you know, Jung's into uh, alchemy, and he's written some books on alchemy. And I was reading this thing from, it's, it's a sort of central alchemical text, thing called the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus. And it's a list of alchemical uh, deductions and truths, and, 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 and I don't know, 14 or 16 of these things. The very first one starts off, and they're numbered. The first one says, number one, my name is Hermes Trismegistus, and what I'm about to tell you is true. And I thought to myself, well, I first thought, why did, why did he say that? Why did it? And then I realized that if he had, to, he had to eliminate that discriminating mind in order to let the truth of what he was going to say sink in. It's so important. And that, and that we would throng after every indulgence backed by no authority condemns us to habitually having to have as part of our mental apparatus that little scrutiny that's going on. Right after Dante has it be in Mandelbaum's translation, people throng to every indulgence backed by no authority, comes an interesting commentary. One of the reasons that we shy away from from authorized uh, or traditional what's offered by the tradition or authorities as, as truth or the availability of truth. One of the ways, reasons we shy back from it is because we want to be ourselves. We don't, want to be, uh, we don't want to be religious widgets stamped out of some assembly line. We want to do it ourselves. We want to be our unique. Right after Dante quotes that thing about uh, thronging to every indulgence backed by no authority, he says, 
To all, the primal light sends down its ray, and every splendor into which it enters receives that radiance in its own way. It's an emphasis now on the uniqueness which comes from receiving that, that divine light and receiving it as the creature I am and you are. So we, it, it is, there's, Desjardins again says this thing about once the material order has achieved this mystery called personality, that's the great, that's the great achievement. And I mean, when we got to the place where there was something, where, this, where a creature suddenly had something which we dimly allude to with the word personality, once we get there, Teilhard Desjardins says, a very strange thing happens. And that is, from that point on, union differentiates. That is to say, that I do not lose my unique identity when I, when I join with the divine. I become uniquely who I am. Canto 30 is a very significant, important turning point. It's actually the stopping point. The physical journey is over. Dante has arrived at where he's going to be throughout the rest of the poem, and he stops. And now the journey that he will have to continue is a journey in his capacity to see and understand. Again, his poetry and his, and his mystical journey now become the same thing. He says, as the canto begins, when the sky begins to show such changes that a star or two begins to fade from the eyes of watchers here below, and as the sun's most radiant serving maid, that's Aurora the dawn, comes nearer yet, and heaven puts out its lamps one by one till the loveliest two must fade. See, that's the simile. Okay. We'll go on from there, but just to make a point of what how marvelously Dante has drawn the image. The image is of dawn, which is to say the coming of light, experienced as the flickering out of the lights. That is to say, as dawn comes, the stars go out. Okay? Dante's poem now is going to begin to face the light of the Godhead and of the angelic and redeemed souls. And it's as though there is a dawn and he is experiencing the dawn as the diminution of light. The, the stars are going out. The stars in this sense are the angelic order and the saved souls. But notice he says, And as the sun's most radiant serving maid comes nearer yet, and heaven puts out its lamps one by one till the loveliest too must fade. The loveliest in the morning sky is Venus. Venus is the goddess of love. And this is very likely a reference to Beatrice who we hear the last of Beatrice in Canto 30. She is fading in that sense from the poem. And the poem is anticipating that. But the beauty of the image is that the, the dawn of the new and true light is experienced as a darkening. Just so, that triumph that forever races round the blinding ray of the fixed point that seems embraced by what itself embraces, faded. What is fading is the angelic order. 
all of these nine regions of the angelic order. Those are fading. And he says of the, of the point of the Godhead, it seems embraced by what itself embraces. And this is like the theological version of the discovery of the law of gravity. That is to say, we, don't, we got raised on the law of gravity and uh, it, doesn't, it, does, it doesn't astound us anymore. I mean, except you drop something. I'm not talking about that kind. I'm talking about when you think that somehow the planets would stay in orbit, orbit around the sun because of this strange attractive force. It's a, really quite a mystery. And what Dante is discovering is that what seemed like the containment for the divine is actually in gravitational attraction to it. It is. The angelic lights, the stars, metaphorically the stars, faded from sight degree by slow degree at which I turned my eyes from the lost vision to Beatrice as love commanded me. And then there's this long hymn to Beatrice and Dante doesn't know that she's about to depart but she is now fully revealed because they're in the highest heaven and now he sees her as she truly is and he says, I concede defeat. I cannot give expression to her beauty. From the first day... I looked upon her face to this, in this life, to this present sight of her. My song has followed her to sing her praise. But there, excuse me, but here I must no longer even try to walk behind her beauty. Every artist his utmost done must put his brushes by. So do I leave her to a clarion of greater note than mine, which starts to draw its long and arduous theme to a conclusion. She, like a guide who has his goal in sight, began to speak again. We have ascended from the greatest sphere to the heaven of pure light. Pure light. Not refracted light, not prismed light, not sensible light, but pure light. And she goes on to say what this light is, and this would, of course, been da- would have been Dante's understanding in the medieval time of light. Beatrice says of this realm of pure light, light of the intellect, which is love unending. Now, we can know right away that when Dante uses the word intellect as when medieval uh, scholastics used the word intellect, they were not talking about this little thing we usually refer to by that name. They were talking about something much more, much broader and more wholesome and more uh, infused with more longing than the mind or the rational function or the discriminating function but the intellect is what we would call consciousness so Beatrice says light of the intellect which is love unending that's what it is love unending the consciousness really is love that's what it's destined to become so let me finish the tercet light of the intellect which is love unending love of the true good which is holy bliss bliss beyond bliss all other joys transcending this is the urge at its highest point the urge when it's this divine urge which is which is imputed into the material order at the very beginning gropes through its instinctive compulsive impulsive stages gathers itself self up into finally personality is infused in the notion in our gropings toward love and desire 
and finally becomes consciousness and then love. That's what the divine urge is destined for. In Dante's world, light means consciousness. And there are three major forms of that light in Dante's cosmology. The light of reason, Virgil would have been representative of that. The second is the light of faith, Beatrice would have been representative of that. And the third is the beatific vision. It's the light of love itself seen in an unmediated way. And that is a rare experience, usually reserved only for those who have died. St. Paul had it when he was swept up into the third heaven, and Dante is about to have it. But it is a rare experience. So Dante is going from the light of faith, represented by Beatrice, to the, light, to the, to the beatific vision itself. And he will, Beatrice will be replaced by St. Bernard, who will lead him to that final vision. But as the light strikes, Dante says, as a flash of lightning striking on our sight destroys our visual spirits so that the eye cannot make out even a brighter light, just so an aureole burst all, over, all about me, swathing me so completely in its veil that I was closed in light and could not see. That's Paul's conversion. That's a parallel to Paul's conversion. And Beatrice reassures him, the love that keeps this heaven ever the same greets all who enter with such salutation and thus prepares the candle for his flame. Beautiful. Prepares the candle for his flame. This is where, this is, this is where we go tripping along singing, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, and then death. <laughs> Why is there death in the world? To prepare the candle for his flame. Now, the, the other flame was, was a preliminary. It's okay. It's good. But it has to be... And too bad that it takes death to prepare it for his flame, but that's apparently the way it is. Biancoli says, predisposes the candle for the divine flame. What, Dante, what earlier was called love's desire. Love's fire. 